The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. I did. I do want to make a slight correction to last week when I did say something wrong, and it was corrected by Tim afterwards. Gordon Clark did not ever come into the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, even though he taught at Covenant College, he apparently refused to join the PCA. If anybody was being kept up at night by that error, I'm sorry. Um, but Tim has his coffee pot and also apparently knows more about him than I do. So, Okay. So today, uh, we are going to cover some more OP history. Uh, we're, we're getting into a, a time period in OPC history where I think the majority of folks, even those of us who may know something about OPC history, uh, don't, don't really have a, knowledge, a lot of knowledge of, of this area. And um, it's, it's going to be a little bit difficult because we also have to cover uh, the origins, or at least very quickly we're going to cover uh, the origins and development of what would become the Presbyterian Church in America today. So I'm going to try to go at a reasonable speed, um, stop me, yell at me, Correct me, whatever you need to do, just blurt out. Uh, and if I go too fast, you can tell me to stop. So, okay, getting a few more folks in. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get, we'll get into the discussion. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, as we return again to study uh, the work of your Spirit through your church in ages past, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us now, that you would help us to see uh, in the past, examples as well as, um, well, examples both to be emulated and to be avoided, Lord. We pray that you would uh, bless and encourage us as we hear about uh, the desire that many have had in the past for unity in the faith, and that you would encourage us, O oh Lord, to be judicious uh, and to be wise as we seek to enter into unions and seek even at times, if necessary, to break fellowship with others, Lord. We pray that you would bless us now and that you would guide us by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so I want to begin uh, by speaking a bit about the OPC and its ecumenical efforts uh, during the first several decades of the denomination. Um, When the OPC was founded, uh, there were uh, obviously not the great diversity of Reformed churches that we have in the United States currently uh, in existence, and I'm I'm talking about conservative Reformed churches. So uh, the OPC is in some ways, the first American reaction against modernism. Um, There had been reactions against liberalism, theological liberalism, in various places in Europe, um, and actually that plays into what we're going to talk about today. For instance, in the Netherlands, uh, there had already been uh, a movement, a secession movement in the 1830s, in 1834 to be specific, uh, where many Dutch uh, folks had come out of the state church uh, because liberalism and unbelief were making inroads there. Um, this was also the case in Scotland. I was just talking to somebody this morning actually about the free church. The free church came out. Uh, the, the Dutch uh, secession movement started in 1834. The, the Scottish division, the disruption in the Church of Scotland, start, it happened in 1843. So uh, interesting, you can remember those two by reversing the dates a little bit. Um, but in America, the OPC is, is kind of that first reaction, that first division that takes place because of liberalism infecting denominations. And because of that, there's a limited uh, amount of, of congreg- or not congregations, but a limited amount of um, churches that the OPC could enter into fellowship with in the United States. 
but one of the churches which the OPC did do that with, and one that we became very, very close with in the early decades of our existence, was the Christian Reformed Church. Now, I believe that we can probably still see that, maybe even in this congregation. Who, who here has a CRC or URC background? Got one. That's it? Oh, okay. You went to a CRC school? Okay. So I was actually expecting a little bit more. Uh, but in your typical OPC congregation, you will see, as many of you know, uh, a lot of Dutch names. And some of that is a result of the close fellowship that the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Christian Reformed Church had over the years. My first minister in the OPC was a man who had grown up in the CRC, graduated from Calvin College, and, and then come into the OPC uh, later on. So uh, e- even now, we still have the residual of that going on. But it was, very, uh, it was a very, very intimate fellowship uh, in the early days. So when the OPC held its first General Assembly, uh, the CRC, the Christian Reformed Church, actually sent um, fraternal greetings to the OPC there at its very first General Assembly. They didn't actually enter into fellowship with them until later, but they were immediately encouraging the OPC as a very young church. Uh, and so close was the fellowship between them that several Christian Reformed ministers actually served on committees that helped develop the OPC's form of government. For instance, you can think of somebody like R.B. Kuyper. Has anybody ever read The Glorious Body of Christ by R.B. Kuyper? It's a, okay, (laughs) we have our our seminary student back here who has, and and, and then a, a minister who has. Okay, so we're, Maybe it's not popular, but, you know, read The Glorious Body of Christ by R.B. Kuyper. It's a great book. Um, But R.B. Kuyper uh, began to work with the committee that developed the OPC's form of government while he was still a member in the CRC. And his classes actually gave him permission to do so. The same was the case for Cornelius Van Til. Both of these men were simultaneously ministers in the Christian Reformed Church, as well as serving as founding members, in some ways, of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, and that union or that fellowship continued to be very, very close for many years. In fact, um, it, at least the book that I was reading, and I think we have some folks from Michigan here, so maybe they can, uh, maybe they can confirm or deny this, but I, I've read that the OPC did not have a congregation in the state of Michigan until 1968. And the reason for that was uh, respect for the Christian Reformed Church. Um, similar in some ways to the state of things in the OPC in the state of South Carolina. Uh, There's hardly any Orthodox Presbyterian churches in the state of South Carolina, and if you ask an OP guy, one of the two (laughs) that are in South Carolina, why is that? Well, South Carolina has a lot of really good PCA churches. It has a lot of really good ARP churches. So we don't feel the need, really, to to plant churches there as as much as we do in other places. So um, that's that's an interesting... um, aspect of this this early relationship that they had together. So they had a great deal of mutual respect. Um, in 19, uh, er, yeah, 1959, the CRC had 70 ministers who graduated from Westminster Seminary and who had basically been trained by Orthodox Presbyterian ministers. Um, there was a pipeline that existed from Calvin College to Westminster and either into the OPC or into the CRC. And sometimes men went back and forth. So a very close relationship between the OPC and the CRC. Interestingly, uh, because of this close 
OP has with the CRC, uh, the OPC ends up pursuing ecumenical uh, ventures outside of the United States, primarily. Now, this is a, an interesting thing to note. The OPC doesn't have fellowship with, say, the Bible Presbyterians. Uh, and at that time, I'm not sure the Bible Presbyterians wanted to have <laughs> fellowship with the OPC. We do today, which is actually a glorious thing, and hopefully we'll get there later. Um, but they didn't have fellowship with the Bible Presbyterians. They didn't have... Uh, formal fellowship with Southern Presbyterians in the PCUS, although there was a lot of uh, mutual respect and, and cross-pollination. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Uh, but we did have formal relationships along with the Christian Reformed Church in Europe and in South Africa and in other places where there were Dutch Reformed Churches and even some European, or not European, but uh, some British Reformed Churches. Um, the OPC, along with the CRC, were the only two members of the Reformed Ecumenical Synod, which was an ecumenical synod, an ecumenical movement um, that was uh, formed in the Netherlands and included Reformed churches from throughout the world, primarily Dutch Reformed churches. Uh, Here we have a great picture of uh, Ned Stonehouse, longtime professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, standing next to Herman Ritterboss, uh, uh, another famous a New Testament scholar at the Reformed Ecumenical Synod whenever it met in Amsterdam uh, in 1949. So the OPC uh, did have a desire to express the visible unity of Christ's church. They had a desire for that. Um, but they found themselves in a place where they didn't feel comfortable entering into fellowship with people, except for primarily um, overseas, uh, which is a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to note. And it also suggests how close that connection was with the CRC. Uh, Ned Stonehouse is another man uh, who was uh, a Dutchman and from a CRC background who ended up in the OPC uh, in those earliest days. So because we're talking about the CRC right now, I do want to make an apology and some recommendations. Um, The first apology... (laughs) Tim and I uh, could not cover Dutch Reformed churches in America. <laughs> we just couldn't do it. Uh, we, we can't cover that material along with the Presbyterian tradition. It would just be way too much. Um, not that you haven't already gotten way too much information. But I do want to point you to some, direct, uh, some places. If you're interested in the history of the Dutch Reformed Church in the United States, uh, this first one is uh, the Dutch Reformed Church in the American Colonies by Gerald D. Young. Um, this is a book that's part of a series of books that were written uh, commemorating the, the Reformed Church in America's history. There's a, there's a number of books in, in that series that are probably worth reading. Uh, but this one in particular is very interesting. And we, we talked about people uh, like Frelinghausen at an earlier period. People like that show up in this book. And there is, even at this earliest period, some cross-pollination between Reformed churches from the Netherlands, Netherlands and Germany and uh, the church that came from Scotland and, and, uh, and Ireland and became the Presbyterian Church. And then the other, I held up earlier, but I'll do it again here, is this wonderful book that I haven't had an opportunity to read completely, but it's very, very good, A Goodly Heritage, The Secession of 1834, and its impact on the Reformed churches in the Netherlands and North America. Um, so I'm just giving you those resources. You can come up here and look at this if you're interested. I thought there would be more Dutch people here, so... Mr. Van Buren is holding it down. So. 
Oh, well, you didn't raise your hand. You did? Uh, okay. Well, there's a Van Eyck back there, too. All right. Well, we'll uh, okay. So uh, is there another one? Oh, there's a, you're married to a Dutchman. Dutch woman. Anyway, you're, you're grafted in. <laughs> okay. All right. So there you go. If you're interested in Dutch reform history in America, there you go. Um, but anyway, I did want to note the CRC was a split from the Reformed Church in America, and in some ways the split mirrors the split, actually, directly, that happened in the Netherlands, and that split is over basically what we would come to call theological liberalism, unbelief that had seeped into the church, and that's how the CRC came about. So in a sense, it makes sense that the CRC would be so sympathetic uh, to the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in its, in its early days, not only because they had so many direct connections. Okay, so... Uh, speaking about the OPC and its ecumenical endeavors, um, unfortunately, if you know anything about the CRC, you know that the OPC no longer has a relationship with the CRC. Um, there are decades and decades of cooperation between the two churches. We almost joined, okay? Actually, we came very, very close a couple of times. Um, so much so uh, that when the OPC eventually did break fellowship with the CRC, which was in 1997, fairly recently, um, I've, I've heard a report that there really wasn't a dry eye in the assembly room. Uh, basically, all the ministers there broke down into tears because we had had such a strong relationship with the Christian for many years. And uh, they continued to do things that we eventually couldn't tolerate. The last... The last uh, thing that they ended up doing that finally broke the fellowship was they began to ordain women uh, to the office of ruling elder and minister in the 90s. Um, but the, the decay had started much earlier. As early as the 1960s, uh, there were OPC presbyteries sending up alarm bells uh, to the General Assembly uh, saying there, there are issues in the Christian Reformed Church. That those proved to be right. Um, interestingly enough, if you are aware of things going on in the broader church. The Christian Reformed Church actually rejected a proposal to uh, basically legalize in its bounds same-sex marriage this last year. And so there is some hope, potentially, uh, that there is uh, maybe a burgeoning conservative movement in the CRC. Maybe things will, will come back the other direction. I think we can all pray that way, especially looking at the relationship that we've had in the past, but We'll, we'll just have to see in God's providence what takes place. So that's uh, the CRC and the OPC. By the 1970s, as we said, the relationship between the CRC and the OPC is starting to spoil a bit. Uh, the OPC begins to uh, fellowship much more with conservative Presbyterian groups. So this is the time period where we had, we talked about last week, uh, the evangelical Presbyterians joining uh, with the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, the, the, the New Light Synod, and becoming the RPCES, the Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod. And the OPC does enter into conversations uh, with the RPCES, and then later in the 1970s with the PCA and the RPCES, and later we will talk about the failed joining and receiving effort, where the PCA shot the OPC down twice. <laughs> we voted ourselves out of existence twice, and the PCA rejected us both times. The third time, the PCA accepted us, and we rejected them. And there's interesting reasons for that. Perhaps one of the major ones was the OPC was having a 50th anniversary 
at that general assembly and it, uh, assembly and there was a there was a lot of desire to maintain OPC identity at that point. I think unfortunately um, things have drifted. It's hard to imagine uh, any anything like that happening in the near future, but who knows. So, uh, the OPC and its ecumenical endeavors, it was fervent. It wanted to have ecumenical endeavors, uh, but it, it, didn't, it just didn't always find it possible. So we'll, we'll talk more about that later, but, um, but I do want to keep moving. We do, need to, we do need to move on a bit. I do, because we're trying to focus this, these lessons in, particularly not only on general OP history, but even more specific to our congregation in some ways, um, it is important to note uh, that in 1952, the OPC establishes its, its first uh, church within the bounds of what would be the Presbytery of the Southeast, which is the Presbytery which we belong to. Uh, before that, they had established congregations in Florida, which makes sense, right? I mean, we're a Yankee church, and uh, people from the north go to Florida. I understand now. I don't know why they did it then. Anyway, alligators, mosquitoes. What's not to love? Um, just kidding. We got some Floridians back there. Okay. I'll stop making fun of Florida. I, I even said last week that Carl McIntyre was the Florida man of American Presbyterianism. That's probably offensive as well, too. But anyway. Um, so the first, the first OPC congregation uh, was founded uh, in, in 1952. Now, this is, I, I want to talk about this a little bit. It, it's an interesting crossing of streams uh, that takes place here. Uh, what what happened is in in Val uh, Valdosta, Georgia. Is that how you guys say it? Valdosta. I knew I wasn't going to say it. Right. There you go. Got a guy from Georgia. All right, good. So uh, down down there, <laughs> a uh, a church left uh, the PCUS over liberalism. What what had happened was that uh, the ruling elders at this church, as well as the congregation, became aware that the minister in the congregation was a liberal. He had been quiet about it. He had kind of snuck in, as they were wont to do, and it became evident after a while that this man was was a liberal. And the ruling elders of that church brought this to the Presbytery of Southwest Georgia. I believe it was Southwest Georgia. And uh, they said, look, we've got to get rid of this guy. We, he does not, he does not preach the way we want him to preach. He's, we believe he's basically an unbeliever. We've got to do something. And the Presbytery refused to let them dismiss their minister. As a result of that, uh, everybody, save the minister, I'm assuming, left the church. <laughs> and, they, and they founded an independent congregation. And that independent congregation uh, then sought out help from two places. One, I believe, was from William Charles Robinson, who was a professor at Columbia Seminary. Uh, and uh, the other was from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And uh, what ended up happening was a, a, a young Columbia Seminary student uh, by the name of Morton H. Smith, who's known to this congregation, and, uh, many of us personally, uh, came and uh, began to fill the pulpit at the congregation. And uh, the church actually desired to call him, and they sought to call him uh, once they had joined the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he almost came. And some of you have probably heard this story, maybe directly from, from Dr. Smith. Uh, but uh, what happened was that Dr. Smith uh, contacted Cornelius Van Til and talked with Cornelius Van Til about the possibility of coming to this Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And Van Til 
at the same time, is watching things beginning to decline in the Christian Reformed Church. And Van Til's heart was breaking for his mother's church. And he told Morton Smith, stay in the Southern Church. And so Morton Smith, at the advice of Cornelius Van Til, stayed in the Southern Presbyterian Church. And the uh, church there in Georgia had to look for another minister. And they eventually did find another OP minister. And uh, Dr. Smith would go on to become instrumental in the founding of the Presbyterian Church in America. And we'll talk about him more later. Yes. Uh, I don't know because I was reading OP sources, to be honest with you. So there may, there may have been, you know, we know how these things go. Any of us have been in the church for very long. There may have been more to the story. Um, but the, the way I read it uh, was that the Presbytery basically didn't want to start. They didn't want to open the door for witch hunts, basically, in the Presbytery. They were concerned that, that other congregations would start having issues with their pastors. The, the Presbytery at that time apparently was fairly moderate, too. So it was, it was a mix and maybe leaning towards being a liberal Presbytery. And so they, they didn't want to start the process of, of removing men because of theological issues. I mean, this happened in some other places as well. Uh, and as churches liberalized, it happened in the North and in the South. People don't act. Probably not to the General Assembly of the PCUS at that time. So as early as the 1930s, we're going to talk about that in a second, but as early as the 1930s, you had men trying to try ministers for heresy and getting no hearing. And we're we're not talking about, we're not even talking about Arminians. We're talking about people who don't believe the virgin birth and stuff like that. So, I mean, this decline, it's happened slower in the South, but it it was happening. You know, there is a reason why Machen and, and the others didn't really think very seriously about going to the PCUSA. There were already problems. So, um, any, anyway, um, so uh, here we have a picture of Morton Smith at one of the PCA General Assemblies. A little bit younger than most of us remember him if, <laughs> if we knew him. Okay, we will go from here. Yeah, okay, so this is a good transition point, I think, to begin to talk about uh, the origins of the PCA, which obviously is going gonna, is gonna to be a big deal for the OP. Um, I have a picture here of a man named James Vance. He was a minister, uh, actually the minister of the biggest PCUS church in the United States uh, in the late 1800s, the 1890s. And the reason I have a picture of Mr. Vance here is because in the 1890s, uh, Mr. Vance was preaching Arminianism from the pulpit of one of the largest churches in the Southern Presbyterian Church. (laughs) And actually, his sermons uh, were, were put together and published by the denominational board uh, and basically encouraged people to read these sermons. So here we have, you know, we think of the Southern Presbyterians, we think of these stalwart confessional men, and many of them were, but very early, we, we already have problems in the South. And, and this, is, this is one of those places uh, that, we, that we see them. Um, in the early 20th century, uh, we would begin to have other men. Uh, there were actually uh, a man who ministered just down the road from us here at First Presbyterian Church in Fayetteville. 
uh, by the name of uh, McKinnaway uh, and uh, other men such as uh, Walter Lingle, who is a professor of Hebrew at Union Seminary. Uh, these men and others like them, here's another, we'll get to Ernest Trice Thompson in a second, um, began to, to preach and to teach basically the social gospel. If you're familiar with this idea, this is something that originated in the North, people like uh, Walter Rauschenbusch and others. Um, but, but they began in the South to preach and teach primarily about things like poverty, eventually, not at this early period, but eventually we're going to have a heavy focus on racial reconciliation and, and other things like that. And, and what happens is that subtly, uh, the gospel begins to be pushed out. And the focus of the church begins to be almost primarily on social issues. And uh, this, this takes hold fairly fairly early. We're talking about the 1920s, 30s, and especially into the 40s and the 50s. Uh, things are beginning to decline, uh, both in the seminaries and in the prominent pulpits of the Southern Presbyterian Church. Um, I want to mention uh, this, this man here, uh, Ernest Trice Thompson, uh, for two reasons. One is that he was, probably it would be fair to say, the face of theological progressivism uh, in the Presbyterian Church in the United States uh, in the 19th century. Um, he was active in the church from the 30s uh, through uh, to the 1980s. He was had a, had a long time. He had a lot of influence on the Southern Presbyterian Church. And he wrote, actually, kind of the definitive history of Southern Presbyterianism. Uh, so it's a three-volume set. Uh, Tim might have brought it in when he was talking about this. Um, it's actually very good. The first two volumes are particularly when you get to the third volume, you start to see his theological inclinations. Um, and they become very, very prominent, actually. Um, but so Ernest Trice Thompson, though, was a professor of church history at Columbia Theological Seminary. I'm sorry, not at Columbia Theological Seminary. At Union Theological Seminary in uh, Richmond, Virginia. Now, remember, we had talked about Union. Union was founded around the same time as Princeton. Um, but Union had moved from Hampton Sydney College in Farmville to Richmond uh, later on in its history. And uh, Dr. Thomas is actually buried at the Union Seminary graveyard at Hampton Sydney College. So he's in the same graveyard with, say, R.L. Dabney. It's kind of interesting. If you go there, you can see you know, Thomas Peck and R.L. Dabney and uh, Mr. Thomas Thompson here, too. <laughs> so uh, he's a little bit out of place. But uh, Dr. Thompson actually precipitates one of these major battles that I was referring to earlier uh, in response to uh, the question. Uh, There was a a man, I believe, in Charlotte uh, by the name of Tom Glasgow, who was uh, uh, an elder in the church, who sought to have uh, this man, uh, Ernest Trice Thompson, tried for his theological views. And what happened was that the General Assembly kicked his charges from the General Assembly down to the Presbytery of Hanover, East Hanover actually, and that, that, was, a, that, that was his Presbytery, and it was a theologically liberal Presbytery. So basically the GA said at that point, we don't want to do this kind of thing. So they were going to send it back down to the Presbytery. So you ask the question, why would it be the case... Uh, that they wouldn't appeal to Presbytery 
probably things like this is what led them just to go ahead and become an independent church. So it wasn't, it wasn't unreasonable for them to make that move at that point. Um, so in 1935, the General Assembly of the uh, Presbyterian Church in the U.S. established a permanent committee on social and moral welfare. That committee... Hey, see, now we're talking in 1935. That's a year before the OPC forms. Um, that committee would become a dominant force in taking the church away from, as the Southerners would have understood it, the spiritual mission of the church and towards social progressivism and politics. But those things began very early, like we said, to, to supplant the, the gospel um, 1942, I'm moving kind of fast, so sorry for that. But 1942, the Southern Church changes its standards officially to make them less Calvinistic. The revision of the standards at that point was pretty similar to what happened in the North earlier on. I believe Tim covered this whenever he was talking about the OPC's founding. But when the OPC was founded, it returned the standards to an earlier form. Um, and... It was because of revisions made like this that it did that. The PCA would later do the same thing. They would return the Westminster Standards to an earlier form uh, to cut out some of these additions and subtractions that had been made over the years to make the standards less uh, offensive uh, and less reformed. (laughs) Um, I want to note also that... Another sign that things are declining in the Southern Presbyterian Church is the efforts towards union. Uh, we mentioned earlier that there was a union attempt to unite three different Presbyterian churches in the 50s. Uh, the United Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, and the Southern Presbyterian Church. And at that time, conservatives were able to defeat uh, the, the motion to join uh, with the Northern Church, um, in, in the Southern Conservatives were at that point, um, but the seeds were planted, <laughs> and really from that point on, there would be a constant desire in the South to unite with the Northern Presbyterian Church, and that set alarm bells off for Southerners for a number of reasons. One is not so flattering, and that's racial issues. Uh, the, the Northern Church was much more progressive, as they would have said it then, on racial issues. And the Southern Church was not at all. So you do have to understand that one of the unique things about the history of the PCA is that the history of them seeking to avoid union with the Northern Church, it wasn't completely this, and I don't want to make that the case. It definitely wasn't completely this. But part of it uh, what was racially motivated. And that there were men who were very unhappy with the idea, for instance, that there could be presbyteries that had both black ministers and white ministers, or synods that had black and white ministers together. Uh, this, was a, this was an issue. It wasn't the biggest issue, and I don't want to make it that. I think some people make it that. That's not true. But it was, it was there, and you will see it in some of the writings of men trying to prevent uh, the union from taking place. Another thing, though, that's, that's more, I think, helpful and interesting uh, for our, for our uh, context here, is that the Southern Presbyterian conservatives uh, were very aware of what had happened with J. Gresham Machen. They were very aware of it. 
And it, it, it is a constant theme, if you go back and read some of their writings, uh, that they are concerned to join with the church that defrocked Jagras and Machen. They're very concerned about that. They see what happened with Machen as a canary in a coal mine, which I think we would all agree it was, and they realized that a church that would discipline Machen and not discipline the signers of the Auburn Affirmation was no church that any Bible-believing Christian wanted to be a part of. And they were very clear about that. That shows up in some of their pamphlets. I mentioned before that when the United Presbyterian Church was seeking to unite with the PCSA, the OPC's Committee on Home Missions actually sent out pamphlets to ministers in the United Presbyterian Church trying to convince them not to join with the PCUSA. And one of those pamphlets was by a conservative by the name of William Cumming. And he, he argues throughout that pamphlet that the real reason for rejecting the reunion is the Machen trial, and it is the signing of the Auburn Affirmation. So... That's significant. We, we should not fall prey to the idea that these guys are just a bunch of racists. They definitely had some problems in that area. But, but that's, that's not what it's all about here. Um, by the time we get to the 1960s, we've got serious, serious, serious problems in the Southern Church. Um, uh, I picked one example here that I thought was illustrative. The 1960s obviously brings a sexual revolution. It actually becomes known amongst Southern Presbyterian conservatives that there were PCUS campus ministers holding seminars encouraging their college students to... uh, I don't know how to put this. Encouraging their college students to participate in premarital sex. Okay? This is a church-sanctioned, church-funded activity. And of course, you can imagine the conservatives are livid at things like this. And, and by the time we actually get to, to like 1971, which is really the General Assembly that leads to the conservatives deciding it's time to go, at that assembly, they discussed union with the Northern Church. They also discussed setting up a fund which would pay for abortions. Church funds. We're talking about your tithes and offerings going to a fund that would pay for abortions for underprivileged women in low-income areas. So things are bad by the time we get to the foundation of the PCA. And by the time conservatives eventually say, we've got to go. Um... Times were bad when the OPC left the Northern Church. And times were bad when the conservatives left the the PCUS. Uh, I say that in part because there are Presbyterians, I mean, we're known for being the split peas, who like to leave. (laughs) And there are enough micro-Presbyterians in this country to to prove that point a hundred times over. These men did not leave over little issues. And, and I would exhort us, you know, I don't know what the future holds in the OPC, but we should not leave <laughs> over little issues. You know, the, these men were talking about serious, serious matters. I mean, these are things where you can't, you can't stay. You can't stay. 
I mean, Machen was pushed out, defrocked. And basically, these men got to the point where they, they could not minister in this church in good conscience. I think that's a lesson for us. We're talking about drawing some positive lessons from American Presbyterianism. This is one of them. You know, we should not be quick to leave. We shouldn't be quick, quick to leave a local congregation, and we shouldn't be quick to leave a denomination. That's my perspective, and I think, I think that the history bears that out. But, okay. Um, we were talking about Southern Presbyterian conservatives. I want to mention a few. Uh, here we have William Charles Robinson. Um, some of you, I, I, I know some of you knew Dr. Smith personally. I only had the opportunity to meet Dr. Smith uh, really one time uh, before he passed away. I actually was able to go and take his, well, I think it was his last class on Southern Presbyterian theology. Um, and Dr. Piper had actually told me, if you want to take this class from Dr. Smith, you better, because he's not going to be teaching it for much longer. So I did, and I went and, and took it. Um, but if you did know him and you had ever talked with him about these matters, you would know that this man, William Charles Robinson, was very, very influential on him. And William Charles Robinson was a professor of apologetics, church polity, and uh, church history at Columbia Seminary. And he, he fought the good fight for many, many years, uh, standing up for conservative Presbyterianism and for the Westminster Confession and the Bible in the Southern Presbyterian Church. And it was... It was through his teaching, that many of the men who had gone through Columbia Seminary and did not go in a liberal direction were influenced. So he's someone who deserves uh, to be remembered, I think. It's uh, very important to do so. Jumping forward, we have a graduate of RTS Jackson here with us uh, this morning. Um, Some of the institutions that were important in the founding of the PCA. Uh, RTS Jackson uh, is obviously one of them. It's not the only one. Uh, but uh, it, it has an interesting history, again, tied very much to, to Morton Smith and, and others who desired to have a theological seminary that could do, in some ways, what Westminster was doing in the north, in the west, in, in, or in the south. Uh, so they had a desire for a conservative and reformed evangelical seminary in the southern United States, which would be able to produce men to go to southern Presbyterian churches, preach the gospel, and maintain orthodoxy. And that desire bore itself out in the formation of RTS Jackson. There were other uh, organizations started, the Presbyterian Laymen. There are actually two of those, one in Selma, Alabama, and one in Jackson. Uh, they were both organizations for laymen who were uh, concerned about the state of the church, as well as uh, Presbyterian Churchmen United, which was an organization for ministers. And there were, there were a number of others. We saw that with Machen that when things started to go bad in the northern church, all these organizations were founded to try to check and provide uh, you know, education or encouragement from ministers who were seeking to maintain uh, reformed thinking in the church. And the same thing happens in the south. These organizations, just like happened in the north with things like the independent board, became very important in the founding of the PCA. And many of the leaders of these organizations became leaders uh, in the early days of the PCA, of course, Morton Smith, we noted, um, Dr. Smith was, for many years, the stated clerk of the Presbyterian Church in America, and he was eventually the moderator uh, later on of the Presbyterian Church in America. Very, very influential uh, in the church, along with many other men who I'm not mentioning for the sake of time. So don't beat me up. I know you folks who really know the P- history of the PCA are going to be highly disappointed by this section of the, of the class. I did want to mention um, the foundation of the PCA. I think this is kind of funny. So the PCA starts, and they adopt a name, uh, the original name of the Presbyterian Church in America. Actually, it's back here. 
You can see it on this plaque that uh, Dr. Smith has. It says at the top there, National Presbyterian Church. So that's the original name of the PCA. So anybody remember what the original name of the OPC was? The, the Presbyterian Church of America, right? <laughs> and the OPC was sued by the PCUSA and had to change its name. Well, the PCA starts as the National Presbyterian Church. It starts uh, holding its first General Assembly here at Broward Presbyterian Church in Alabama. And pretty much immediately, this monstrosity of a building uh, sues them. This is, feast your eyes, on the National Presbyterian Church. Uh, This is a congregation of the PCUSA uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. And they sued the PCA, a single congregation, uh, and won, uh, saying basically that you can't have our name. (laughs) And so then the PCA adopts the name, the PCA, that the OPC had almost had, right? They changed in for of. I don't know why that kept them from getting sued by the PCUSA, by the way. I'd like to know the history of that. Anyway, apparently they weren't as mad at them as they were at us. I don't know. But, um, but they, they were able to keep that name. And uh, so that's how the PCA gets its name and it starts. And we'll talk more about the PCA later, but particularly we'll talk about it in the context of failed efforts to join with the OPC. Okay, now you can berate me with the one minute I have left about the PCA. Questions? I know we have, I think we have some PCA. We have, well, not anymore. I was going to say you're a PCA minister. I was going to say you're a PCA minister, but at heart. Right, right, there you go. Yeah, so Ervon for many years, minister in the PCA. PCA ruling elder here. Go ahead. <laughs> They didn't leave lightly. Yeah, um, so, some of you may know Tom Ellis. Did you know Tom? You know Tom Ellis, who stayed in the PCUS for many years. Um, past the cutoff, I think he lost his building when he left uh, his church. But there were many conservatives who decided not to, to leave. Some of them will become the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Uh, but some don't. And um, interestingly, in Wilmington, you know, where I, I know the history of that, that area well, because I was I'm from there, um, in Wilmington, there was a church that left and became independent, and then they became RPCES, and then they became PCA, and then they became OPC, and that's uh, the church that I originally joined when I was in the OPC, Trinity Church. Um, and that continues in the form of Heritage OPC today. Uh, there was another church, though. It was, came out of the same congregation, actually, another group of people who left uh, the PCUS and became independent for a time, but then went back into the PCUS as a conservative congregation, and now they are a PCUSA congregation to this day, Windermere Presbyterian Church. And that congregation is still conservative. They have me to preach sometimes, uh, and I'm, I'm honored to do so. They're good folks. Uh, their minister loves the gospel, but they are a PCUSA con- congregation to this day, and it's because they were reluctant to leave. They weren't convinced they could do it in good conscience. Now, I think, obviously, they made a mistake. You know, they know that. <laughs> but they're stuck now in some ways. But anyway, yep. 
Yeah. 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 I do want to say, if you need to get your children, go get your children. I'm, I'm willing to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the warnings is is that we do have blind spots, you know, and um, they're blind spots for a reason, right? You know, we, we probably we probably don't see them, <laughs> at least as clearly as we should. Um, the history of Southern Presbyterianism and race is, is an interesting history, um, not just a sad history, but it, it it's instructive, actually, in many ways, because there were men, such as R.L. Dabney, who saw in in progressive politics, um, a leveling happening. So let me explain what I mean by that. They they saw that what lay behind, say, abolitionism was fundamentally a form of egalitarianism. And they correctly recognized that that could lead to, to some real problems. And if you read Dabney at times... It's a little strange because some, in particular, I pick on Dabney because I'm more familiar with him. Um, sometimes he'll say things and you're, you're like, I, that's unbelievably bad. <laughs> you know? But then if you kind of scratch the surface, you begin to realize well, he's connected this issue with other issues. So I, I actually think that if you were to go back in time and ask R.L. Dabney, um, why do you think we have homosexual marriage in the United States today? he would probably point to that, that leveling egalitarian movement that he saw happening back then. And see, that, to me, that's scary in some ways because it shows that you can have the right desires to protect the right things and you can see that there are potential problems with something. And that can lead you to take positions which are, are very problematic, um, such as on the issue of race. I mean, that's, that's a word of caution, I guess, uh, even with some of these men who really make statements that we wouldn't want to support. I mean, doc, Dr. Smith himself had some views on race. Uh, you know, I think very highly of him. Uh, but he was a man who was born in the 1930s in the mountains of Virginia. I mean, he he had prejudices like many of these men did. They were good men, but, I mean, we have to be careful about our cultural prejudices. Um, I, I, yeah, sorry, I, I wish I could say more, but that's where we're at. Okay, we should probably be done before I get in trouble. I'm not the one who forgot to give the benediction, though, so. Anyway, I'm picking. Don't tell him I said that. Anyway. All right, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, O Lord, for how you have preserved your church. Uh, We thank you, Father, that you have protected it, you have watched over it, You have continued to love it, even with all its warts and imperfections. We thank you, Father, that you are steadfast in your love and your care over your bride. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless her, that you would keep her, that you would purify her, and that you would protect her, Lord. We ask, O Father, that as we begin to consider the very end of these lessons that we're we're going through, Lord, that you would encourage us uh, to seek to be more faithful in the future to be more cautious, and to be more fervent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.